Thanks, Eddie. Book of Job. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. Let's have a look at a little bit more at uh, Job's life. morning we'll read from verse 5 to 11, Job chapter 1 verse 5 to 11. It says there, And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned, and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and uh, said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? A perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. Put forth, but put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. That's a... Uh, pray before we get into this message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you've preserved it all these years. You've given it uh, faithfully and we can trust every word of it. Father, I pray this morning as we look into it that indeed our hearts would be willing to accept every word of it. Not just in our heads, Lord, but indeed in our hearts that it might change the way we behave that it might change the outlook that we have in this world, indeed, that we might see better from heaven's point of view rather than the earth's, and that we might see the, the face of our Saviour a little bit more. Father, I pray that we'd know ourselves even a little bit better through this passage today, and I pray, indeed, that we would make choices and decisions that would glorify you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A story was uh, told of a, of a woman, a young woman, who wanted to go to college, and she was a university, because college in the States is the same as university over here. So she filled in the application form. She asked for an application form. They sent it to her. She started to fill it in. She got to a, to a particular place in the form, and her head dropped, and she thought, ah, things are going to get ruined over here. And it said, the question was simply this. Are you a leader? And being quite a conscientious and honest person, she wrote, no, I'm not a leader. Expecting that when she sent the application off that it would be rejected. After a a while, she received the uh, response back in the mail and she opened up the application letter and it said, you have been accepted. She was quite surprised at that. So she read on. And it said, Dear applicant, 
A study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,552 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. That's so true of our age. That is so true. That, 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 when I read that, uh, that, that uh, story, I thought, that's, that's so typical of the people in our generation. Everyone actually thinks they're leaders. Our, our children, our, our teens, our young adults have all been geared up to think of themselves more highly than they actually are. They're not allowed to be told that you know, they've got deficiencies or, or you know what I mean, or they're not, they're not measuring up to the mark. But indeed, if nearly all the applicants who go into university think of themselves as leaders, how many of them actually are leaders? The truth of the matter is that most people in our society have no idea what leadership actually is, especially when it comes to a biblical view of Christianity, of, uh, of leadership. In this age, too many people think of themselves as leaders and examples to follow. And in this passage this morning, we're going to look at and contrast Job's life with Satan. Job was indeed a leader. When we look at Job's life, he was a true leader. But Satan also considered himself a leader. And what we're going to do is contrast those two types of leadership in this message today. See, Job was a successful business person. He was a successful manager. He had possibly the greatest wealth at that time in the world. He had a great household of servants. He was respected in his community for his integrity. And he walked, the Bible says, upright before God. That was a leader. That's someone who you could look to in that age and say, that's the person I want to be like. I want to follow his example. Job, in a sense, followed what Jesus was to teach very clearly thousands of years later. That when it comes to leading, you have to serve. Leading doesn't mean that you're, you're so far ahead of everyone else that you don't see what's going on behind you. And you're expecting people to come chasing you behind. Leadership, according to the Bible, is done by serving. The Bible says that he who is greatest among you needs to be the least or the, or the servant of all. A true leader seeks the advancement of others at his or her expense. Jesus showed this type of leadership when he lived his life. That's why I wanted to bring that up in the, uh, in the thing this morning. Jesus was a true leader, but it cost him everything. He gave it all. The Bible says at one stage he said the Son of Man doesn't even have a, 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 a place to rest his head because he'd given it all for mankind. Leadership means that you will live sacrificially as our Saviour did. And so as we continue our look at Job this morning, we're going to discover a sharp contrast between two leadership styles. One sought the good of others at his own expense. The other sought his good at the expense of others. We're going to look at those, those two this morning. But let's have a quick look once again at why Job was a, a spiritual leader of his time. 
And what does it mean to be a spiritual leader? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us that Job was a, a true spiritual leader because God describes him in this way. He says that Job was a perfect and an upright man, one that feared God and escheweth evil. And I described Job these characteristics. I went through them and, and, um, and, uh, and gave you definitions of each of those. But for our purposes today, and I won't go through all the details again, it's enough for us to know that Job understood what it meant to live a godly life. He understood what it meant to live a godly life, and he didn't just understand it, he lived it. He was well aware, the Bible says, that he was accountable to his creator. He was accountable. In other words, he was going to have to give a record. He was going to have to give an account of the life that he lived one day before his maker. And so he chose to live every day like that. His fear of God caused him to live in a way that honoured God at all times. You see, he held God so high in his estimation that he, he, all he wanted to do in his life was to give him more and more honour and glory. And the fear that he had of God caused him to live like that. And not only... And that's the first thing. So he was an example to everyone else on how to live. So when they looked at him, they saw an upright man, one that feared God, one that ran away from evil when he saw it. He didn't start playing around with it. He ran the other way. So he was a good example for everyone else, and that's what a leader needs to be first and foremost. He needs to be someone who's an example to people around them. But not only was Job aware of his own accountability to God, he was critically aware that everyone else was accountable to God as well. Even the ones who didn't even believe in him. And as much it seems as he, he had within his power, and his ministry, this ministry started within his own home, and I'm sure spread out to his servants and, and the rest, he would do his best to see that they too were found upright before God. He wasn't just concerned about the way he lived his life, so he could be a big example in front of everyone else. He was more concerned about what other people were doing before God. This is clearly displayed in the way he acted as a spiritual leader within his own family. Look at Job 1.5. It says, And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned, and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually... Job was concerned about the spiritual well-being of his children. He knew that not only he would give an account one day before God, and that he was giving an account every day before God, but they too. So he sought for their advancement, for their growth, for their standing before God, that he might have an impact in their lives. Job sought not only his personal relationship with the Lord, to be right, but he desired that of his children to be right as well. His desire was that they would fear God and honour him with their lives as well. And look, his children, no doubt, would have, would have enjoyed a wonderful financial stability in their life. He was the richest man in the world. When you're the richest man in the world, your children are pretty much going to be fairly well off as well. 
I don't think they were struggling because they were, they were wealthy enough to have their own homes and they were wealthy enough to have feasts in their homes. So Job, no doubt, would have enjoyed the fact that his children were stable financially. But he was also longing to see them spiritually stable as well. And this is one of the points I raised last week. That Job's heart was so concerned about the spiritual well-being of his children that he offered sacrifices on their behalf without even knowing if they had sinned. He said, it may be that my children have sinned, but just in case, I want to make sure that I do something. I'm there in the middle of that situation. He didn't accuse them of sin. It says he didn't assume the worst. He didn't hold it against them. It says that he actively sought to intervene between them and God by asking for forgiveness for their sins. His desire was that God would forgive them because of him. Now, that seems strange. I mean, I explained this last week, and I think I've had a few people come to me and say, well, I'm not sure what you were on about last week with respect to us praying for other people or forgiving them and God forgiving them. Well, basically, what this, this passage is telling us is that Job believed in his heart when he offered sacrifices on behalf of his children that God would forgive them because of the sacrifices he offered. He was acting as the priest of his family. He stood between God and his children as their leader and their representative. It seems like a strange doctrine. But this thing actually is common throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. And we're going to look at this a little bit more uh, detail now. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 24. Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel twenty two twenty four says, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion uh, ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies among, unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. 
Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. What was going on here? The prophets had gone astray. The leaders had gone astray. The priests who were meant to be the representatives of the people to God, they were meant to be that, that, those people that stood in between and guided the people in the truth and, sac and offered sacrifice on their behalf had all gone astray. And the Bible says here that God said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stop the, the flow of evil happening. And stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. God could not find one who would stand as a representative for the people to offer sacrifices on their behalf. Who himself was, was righteous before God. He couldn't find one. And the Bible says that God poured out his wrath on the people. None to stand in the gap. Yeah, the gap is where Job was ready to stand. For his own family. Job was so ready to stand in that gap. And if there was a gap. He was going to make sure that he was in the middle of it. To make sure that God's wrath would not fall upon his own children. He was ready to stand there. He prayed for them. He sent for them. He sanctified them on a continual basis. In order that they wouldn't be judged by God. He wanted the best for his children. Now it didn't mean that if his children were going astray. That he gave them license to sin. And he said, oh, it's okay, I'll take care of it over here. No, didn't mean that at all. But it meant that he was ready to stand in between. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, verse 8. For a moment. We'll look at another example in the Old Testament of someone who was ready to stand in the middle. And he did. <coughs> Exodus 32, 8 says this. Now Moses, get this picture, Moses is up on the mountain with God. Joshua is halfway up there as well. And while Moses is, is receiving the commandments of God and spending time with him that he might bring them down to the people, the people are, are building a, a golden calf for themselves. They've gone astray. They're committing adultery and fornication and they're going their own way already while he's getting the commandments. And God says this. God knew what was going on. And he says in verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them. And I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thou wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, 
and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of, I will give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Does the Lord do evil? Does the Lord sin? No. The Lord had every right to destroy the Israelites at that stage. They had forsaken him. He had just saved them out of Egypt. He had performed many miracles to get them out of that place. And their whole gratitude for that was to go chasing after idols. God was well justified to destroy them completely. And he offered a new generation a new, for Moses and his family to be the new people of God. Now what would you do? If you're in Moses' position, you and your generation could be, your children and your children's children, could be the new chosen people. Moses rejected it. Moses loved his people. Even in the midst of their sin, he loved them so much that he said, no, 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 I don't want that. Remember, God, the promises you've made. And he, said, and he said to God, and, and if you look at it, the reason he was um, beseeching God was not just for the people, but for God's glory as well. His concern was that God's name would be profaned because the Egyptians would say he took them out of Egypt just to kill them. So who was Moses concerned about? Not for himself. He was concerned foremost about God's glory and second of all for his people. And he was willing to, to give everything for them. And the amazing thing is that he was able to change God's mind from destroying them. Moses there stood in the gap. Moses stood in the hedge where God was about to destroy the people. Mo God listened to Moses' prayer. And that made a massive difference. Turn with me to the New Testament now. Luke chapter 23 verse 33. And we'll see a very similar situation happening. Luke 23.33 says this. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now, I don't need you to turn to the next one, but I want you to listen to the prayer that Stephen offers while they're stoning him. He says, and they stoned Stephen. It says in Acts chapter 7. They stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, my question to you this morning is this. Did God hear the prayers of Jesus and Stephen? Were they right prayers to pray? Wasn't it right that those people who killed Jesus who crucified him, who did all those nasty things to him, wasn't it right that God would judge them more fiercely and more hard? 
Yet Jesus said, forgive them for what they're doing now. In the midst of him being killed, crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. And Stephen, while they're in the midst of while they're stoning him, while he still had breath in his mouth, he said, Father, don't lay this sin to their charge. What was their motivation? Love was their motivation. Love was their motivation. They were ready to stand in that gap because you see, I can't think of a, a worse sin than, than killing the Son of God. I can't think of many worse sins than that. If you want to scale sin at all in any particular way, you know the ones who whipped him and crucified him, put a crown of thorns on his head and made sure that he suffered as much as he possibly could and then nailed him to a cross and laughed and joked and, and, and gambled at his feet for his own clothes. I can't think of a much worse sin than that. To kill the only innocent person this world has ever known. I can't think of a much worse sin than that. And if there was a place in hell that was reserved specifically for that, I reckon it would have been pretty low. I reckon it would have been right down the bottom in the hottest parts of hell. Because if I was God, that's where they'd be going. They'd be suffering the greatest torment. But in the midst of that, Jesus says, don't forgive them for this sin. They don't know what they're doing. Now I have to believe in my heart that God heard that prayer. Did God forgive them? Yes, he did. Because if God didn't forgive them, he didn't answer the prayer of his own son. Or his son didn't pray in accordance with the Spirit's leading. And I can't believe that. And the same way when Stephen prayed and said, Father, don't hold this sin against them that they were doing. In the middle of them stoning him, I have to believe that God heard that prayer. So what does it tell me? It tells me that we have an ability that other people don't have. We have an ability to be able to ask God to forgive the sins of other people, especially the ones who are, who are actually attacking us. See, the Bible says that if you touch the apple of God's eye, God is ready to, to avenge. God is ready to avenge his children. God does not miss a trick when it comes to bad things that have been done to his children. But you know the amazing thing is that his children have the ability to avert God's wrath. You and I have an ability that the unsaved don't have. We have an ability to come before God and say, Father, don't hold this sin against them. And God will listen to our prayers. And this is what Job was doing. Job was standing as a priest in his family. He was offering sacrifices on behalf of his children. He was praying for them, sacrificing for them, that they would be right with God. His love motivated him to do it. He was concerned so much for their spiritual well-being before God, that he became active about it. He didn't just sit back and say, oh, no, God will take care of that, no problems at all. He was active about it. He intervened. And you know something? Our desire for people to be reconciled to God when they have sinned, especially the ones who have sinned against us, reveals as much about our heart as anything else. Our desire for them not to be judged when they sin. And our willingness to step in and ask God to forgive them for what they've done to us. 
tells us more about our own hearts than it does about their sin. You see, what do I want God to do when someone hurts me? What is it that I want? Do I want God to send down a lightning bolt or a, and fix them up for me? Or I might not take vengeance out them on directly, but what am I feeling in my heart? What am I saying there? What do I want God to do deep down? Do I want God to fix them up one of these days? Am I waiting for the day when God will take care of them? I'd say to you that that reveals a heart that has a problem. Because that's not the heart of our Lord. It wasn't the heart of Stephen. It wasn't the heart of Job. It wasn't the heart of Moses who intervened for his own people when they were in the middle of worshipping a calf. Now listen to Jesus. I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Do good to them that hate you. And it says, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Hey, has he covered all bases over there? Is there anything that he's missed in terms of people doing bad things to you? Despitefully used, persecuted, hated, cursed. Can you think of anything else? Now, what would you be praying to God concerning people that hate you? All people that have taken advantage of you. All people that curse you. Despitefully use you. We should be praying for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We should, not for ourselves, but for them. We should be praying. The Bible says to pray for our enemies. But how can you pray for an enemy if you haven't forgiven them yourself? You can't truly pray for the salvation of a person. You can't truly pray that God would forgive them if you haven't forgiven them yourself first. You can't pray for God to restore and forgive a brother who has sinned against you personally unless you have forgiven them first. And just as I believe that both the prayers of Jesus and Stephen were heard by the Father as they were being killed... I truly believe that our prayers for forgiveness will be heard by our Father if we truly forgive them. You see something? I know God is better than me. Much better than me. And if I can forgive someone, you can rest assured that he can forgive them. Wanting the good of the other person does not mean to leave them to the judgment of God and say, God will take care of them for me when they've sinned. This is contrary to the scriptures and to the spirit of God. While it is right that God avenges, it is right that we should not desire his vengeance upon them. In Luke chapter 9, turn to Luke chapter 9 with me for a second. Verse 52. We're going to look at an example of where the disciples had this thing messed up as well. Luke chapter 9 verse 52 says,
and sent messages before his face. They were going, they were going into uh, towns. The Lord was, was, uh, was travelling and it says that he sent messages before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Get that. Because the Samaritans from this village found out that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, they wanted nothing to do with it because, you see, for Samaritans, Jerusalem wasn't the place to go and worship. They thought he was going to be on their side, but Jesus was, uh, was travelling through and he was on his way to Jerusalem. When they found that out, they said, we want nothing to do with you. They rejected him. So the first thing that John and James do is get offended on behalf of the Lord. And they say, all right, Lord, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to cook them? Do you want us to barbecue them today, Lord? We can do that. Just tell us, give us the word, and we're going to make sure that fire comes down and consumes this whole village. And Jesus', Jesus um, uh, messages uh, or response is telling you, he goes, he rebu- turned and rebuked them. He goes, what are you guys doing? Are you nuts? He says, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. Who's motivating you to do that? You don't understand what, what spirit is motivating you to actually do, want to do that. Because the spirit that I'm, that I'm being motivated by, the Holy Spirit, is not going to tell you to do that. They missed the point completely. That Jesus came to save men's lives, not to destroy them. And this is the same spirit that Job was, was using. This is the same spirit that was motivating Job to sanctify his children. This is the same spirit that we've been called to lead us. To lead every person to the grace and forgiveness of the Saviour who forgave our wretched sins and who still continues to forgive us our weaknesses and our problems. What spirit do you have this day? What is the spirit that's motivating your heart today? Is there bitterness and strife against the people that have wronged you? Are you remembering? Are you bringing up every time something comes up with someone? Stuff that happened days, weeks, months, years ago? Have you not let it go yet? Is forgiveness something difficult to do? Forgiveness is difficult to do. I understand that. Forgiveness is sometimes very difficult to do, especially when people are still doing it to you. But you know something? I know that Jesus asked for forgiveness while he was being killed. It's a high calling that we have. God calls to be different to everyone else in this world. And the life that we've been called to live is not an easy one. You see, if it was easy, God, the Lord wouldn't have said, take up your cross and follow me. It's a hard life. And part of that hard life means to forgive. Genuinely forgive and forget. If you have trouble forgiving this morning, I suggest as a remedy... And the remedy is simply this, is to come back to that cross and fall down at the bottom of that cross 
And as you see the blood that's coming down on that cross, for you and me, you may forgive a little bit more. You may, you may find it a bit easier to forgive when you understand how much you've been forgiven and how much I've been forgiven. Don't delay. Because the longer we hold on to bitterness and strife, the longer we don't, as church people, forgive one another and be the examples we've been called to be, what hope does the world have? How can we share a gospel that we don't live ourselves? See what manner of love and forgiveness was shed for you and consider that you are no better than anyone else. I'm no better than any of you. Don't look at me as a person who's up there on some sort of a pedestal. You know I struggle as well. I struggle. Don't think that I'm immune to all the attacks of Satan. I know what you go through. I know you all have things that burdens and, and things in your lives that you struggle with. But you know something? We have a saviour who is much bigger than any burden that we can ever carry. And he's got much shoulders much bigger. He held up the sins of the world and he bore them all. Do you think he can't handle your problems today? I know he can. So let's seek forgiveness. Reconciliation. Let's be the children that God wants us to be. The Bible says that now we are the ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives. You know, I can't think of a more lofty title than that. The ambassadors of Christ. That goes for every one of us. Not just a few of us. doesn't just mean the pastors and deacons or whatever it is. It means every one of us are ambassadors to this world and it says, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ there be reconciled to God. This is the message that we carry. This is the life that we have to live. If we are to have any impact on this dying world, then we need to live it. And, we, and, and that life needs to start in here. It needs to start here. Because if it doesn't start here, you're not going to do it out there. I'll guarantee you. We have been called to be ambassadors and priests. You know what a priest does? The Jews had priests that were the people who would speak to God on their behalf. And they had confidence that God would listen to their prayers. You get that? And they would sacrifice in order for the people to, to become right with God. We have been called to become priests. We have that title already. God wants us to speak to him on behalf of this generation that we live amongst. So that might be saved. How well are we doing at that? How well can we be doing at that if we continue to have strife amongst each other? And I'm not saying there is. But I know that we struggle. I know there are burdens that we carry. And I know sometimes we feel as if we're not going to make it through. But I tell you that God has said you can make it through. The Bible says that you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You can do it. You can conquer your sins. God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. You and I can do it. And the fact that we're here this morning 
I want to remind you that we are called together to support one another in that endeavour. If I spend all my time thinking about me, then what sort of a leader am I, am I to you? You see, going back to the beginning, what makes a good leader? A leader is someone who doesn't just think about themselves, he's thinking about everyone else. He spends more time thinking about everyone else rather than himself. You see, because the more time I think about myself, the more depressed I probably get. So let's think about one another. Let's be the leaders that God has called us to be in this generation. There is no higher calling than to be called the ambassador of God in this world. We should live like them. We should live lives that are honouring to God, that seek to have people reconciled to God. And if it means we lose it all, if it means it costs us everything, so be it. Don't expect in the next few years that things will get better for us. The world is changing very quickly. We will be seen more and more as fringe in this world as time goes on. We're already a fringe. We're already seen as out there, okay? We're already seen as people who are fundamentalists and, and all these other things I want to I want to label us as people who are fools and, and everything else. It won't get better. It will get worse. So get ready for it now. Because we may find ourselves being persecuted and killed for what we believe in the coming years. Are you the leader? Are you ready for that now? Because it, you might as well start getting ready for it. Let's make the most of this time that we have. God bless you. Thank you. Have a